here we are today. This is episode four of Shit I'm Not Proud Of. Emotional plasticity. What is emotional plasticity? Conventionally, a psychologist might look at this question in the form of something along the lines of how can we shape the emotions that we experience? In this episode, we're going to try tackling a converse question. I want to look at this a little bit differently. How much can our experiences shape the emotions that we feel? As a young physics student, I was explained the difference of elasticity versus plasticity as being this sort of threshold, the space in between a material if it gets stretched no longer returns to its original form. You know those tabs that you have on the top of a pen? If I pull that gently and let go, it will snap back into place. But if I pull it too hard, it will stay bent forever. It might even break off entirely. And so what I want to do is explore this idea of what that threshold might look like in an emotional context, especially if it becomes influenced by the experiences of our lives. With us to discuss is Anna, as always, my heroic co-host. And tonight we have a guest speaker, Alyssa. Hi. Thanks for having me. Everybody's here. We've all showed up. So let's just dive right in here. What do you guys all think about this? Is this framework sensible? Am I putting a round peg in a square hole? Or are there questions that we we might want to lean into in this space? I'm, I'm very curious about it because in my work with growing as a human, I've always wondered what kind of pathways I've created for myself and how elastic they actually are and what it takes to create new ones. Right. I feel almost stuck in a lot of my own habits. And, and there's a context here that I suppose would have been at least a, a mild introduction to Alyssa, which is that Alyssa is my yoga teacher. She's <laughs> the person that I spend the most time with sitting on a mat. There's a big difference between what happens when you're teaching content versus how you're living regular life. Yes. And I imagine that that's, that seems like that's at the crux of what you're talking about here, right? Like there's this, almost this friction between like, yeah, I can speak it out loud and I can be a teacher, but how does that, how does that uh, show up in daily living? How does that ho- happen when you're walking down the street or buying groceries or, or navigating a relationship or whatever? I haven't figured that one out yet, but I recognize that so much of what I'm teaching is about creating new ways of being meaning that we are trying to carve out new pathways for the brain to function, mm. thus creating new habits. And in yoga, we call them samskaras. Samskaras are grooves in a record. They're habits that we fall into. And when repeated, it's habitual. We do it over and over and over again, dating the wrong person, thinking that they're going to change. Could be any form of the wrong person thinking they're going to change. And so through this, this practice, the goal is to create a new way of being, to dig yourself out of, of the habit that doesn't work. I haven't figured out how to do it yet because I still participate in all of my terrible habits, but mm. it's something that's always on my mind, especially when it comes to relationships. I think that our patterns definitely have a lot to do with where we're making our, our choices from. I hope that that's true. It's what rings true for me right now. And I also fully believe that you have experiences in your life that do change you and how you see things forever, but you also still have the same core, you know? So change is possible. Breaking the patterns is possible. Being more mindful is possible. Moving forward in a different direction intentionally, all of these things are completely possible. But also you have this inner voice that always exists and is always there with you. It's the most true relationship that you have. And it takes a lot to change that. The uh, pathways that I've created or the habits or the samskaras that I fall back on all have to do with avoidance. Mm. I don't have to go there. I can be comfortably numb because that's what I've created and feel 
inclined to repeat without even considering the fact that I'm repeating it, especially in relationship. Sure. So you would say that your attachment style in relationships is avoidant? Yes. Okay. But that's pretty powerful to learn, wouldn't you say? It is. And it's also daunting to think about getting out of that. But so much of it is based on past experience that I don't want to touch again. But do you feel comfortable sharing with us maybe some summaries of what would what has led you to having an avoidant approach in relationships? Would that be okay? Yeah. I, I'm guessing that most of it is from my childhood, early childhood core wounds. However... That's definitely where your attachment style comes so from. So much. Totally yes. It's like my, model, yeah. my child, my inner childlike self is, is very wounded. But in my experience of relationship, it's always easier to avoid the communication that needs to happen than actually have the communication. And so when you fall or when I fall into that pattern, it's just, it's like, it keeps me safe. And I don't know what it's protecting me from because there's nothing to protect other than vulnerability. Right. And the, the practice of vulnerability, it, it becomes its own sort of challenge, right? Like uh, one of the things that we had talked about recently was this difference between identifying something in a critical moment, like having a short-term awareness or like a an adeptness or an acuity to being aware of some of those patterns in a specific moment versus this other opportunity that happens that kind of staircase wit of being able to back up and then look at a situation maybe after the fact or like in the elevator or while you're driving home after a date or whenever and thinking like oh man that's that thing that's that pattern that i'm working on i uh, did it again right <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's like it's super easy to get all analytical about this at least it is for me but the the struggle that i have is how to how do i even notice it when it's in that moment right like if i snap my fingers and say oh right now where am i at how do i self-assess what can I do other than like take a deep breath to give the space that I need to even have that awareness? I have no idea. I don't either. I mean, my step is to just breathe. And my fallback, my avoidant term, and I know that I'm avoiding is when I say, I don't know. That's right. that's the catchphrase. <laughs> well, I feel like that's a pretty common one, though. Um, I, I've had a lot of conversations, especially with some of my lady friends recently. They'll, they'll be in kind of a tough conversation with, their partner, whoever they may be. And what is really in, difficult for them is that their partner doesn't know how they feel in the moment. Perhaps they just need more time to respond. Right. Also, I feel like what it has always sounded like to me, and I'm not avoiding in relationships, so I can only speculate, is that um, you just need a little bit more time to feel safe voicing that particular opinion or feeling. Because it seems to me just from listening to these stories that perhaps people who are more on the avoidant end of, of these things can feel like maybe they can't ever win. Do you yeah. think that that's right? Yes. Is that like in the term and specifically, are we talking about discouragement when you say that the can't ever win? Have you ever heard the phrase in an argument? I can't ever win with you. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's okay. kind of what I mean. Another yeah. catchphrase. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yes. But when I stop and think about what that means, it's me holding myself back. It never has anything to do with the person that I'm with. Sure. And I feel like the one time that I let the avoidant guard down, I was able to feel the most love that I've ever felt and like the widest range and dynamic sense of emotional love. And I don't like, I avoid letting anything touch that again, mm. where it's like, that is so sacred because that was something that took me outside of this boxed in way of being that nothing else can ever be that. 
One of the questions that I wanted to ask was sort of this corollary to the the analogy about the top of the pen. It could just snap off entirely. And this idea of brittleness, I think, sort of speaks to what you're saying when you talk about having had an experience that you, you kind of want to build a shell around. Like, can an emotional experience cure or fossilize our future experiences and our future emotional responses and that kind of thing. And it sounds to me like what's being implied by the story you tell is that you feel the answer is yes. Yes, but it's an active choice. My choice, seven years out of it, was I chose to freeze that and then hold everything else up against it. Nothing can be this sacred. I'll never feel this much. I felt everything I'm capable of feeling in this particular moment in time, and that's it. Right. That's a terrifying thought. I mean, just... To stick with that, it, it it's cool because it gives meaning to that experience, but it also like it really makes you beg the question about what's what's in it for me now. Like, what's my future hold in it? I know. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's something that I always think about. I'm capable of of love, and I do love, and I don't know. And the question I always ask myself: Am I capable of genuinely feeling that same way again, or am I holding myself back to protect? that particular sacred moment. Sure. Have I felt everything I'm capable of to its fullest? Do you also think that that maybe you're holding back because did did you ever have moments where you felt like maybe that volatility being someone who is a little bit more avoidant? Did you feel that that maybe that was going into unhealthy territory for you? Another really interesting question that I toy with all the time because I was diagnosed as bipolar at a young age. That was like the peak of the extremes. I can feel so much love and I can feel so much destruction. And it was a combination of like being all the way over in extreme love and all the way over in extreme destruction that there was no middle ground. So the other question that I always ask myself is, am I more self-regulated now? And does that mean that through that self-regulation, I'm more contained in my ability to emote? Or were my most extreme emotions the fullest I'll ever experience? I can relate to that. I feel like everyone in some way, like you you have a med- you have a standard for what your your first real feeling love was. I think everyone can can probably remember that relationship. I understand wanting to pre- protect that. I, I saw a lot of unhealthy behavior in in my first like really involved, really volatile relationship. I saw myself going to such highs and going to such lows. I'm I'm also someone who is fine with the vulnerable, maybe a little too fine, maybe a little anxious in relationships. So being on the other side of the spectrum, I'm used to being that way just from my past experiences. And moving forward, I also find that I try to do the regulation, but for me, it's protecting my sacred space in a relationship instead of protecting another element of the relationship. So anyone, like I relate to what you're saying. It's cool. But it is interesting to hear about these relationships with this balance from two different sides of the street. In my experience too, like that particular time, because I've been in a lot of relationships, I've been in in love so many times, who knows how real it actually was at any given moment. But at that particular time... A, wow, I didn't realize I could feel something so strongly for somebody. B, it was the biggest transitional life moment I've ever had. And so part of that fossilizing the experience is also keeping sacred the biggest moment I've experienced in my own personal growth. 
which, you know, I'm sure I've had moments like that before, but I was lacking in the self-awareness to recognize that this is something big that's life-changing. Add on top of that, I'm also in love with somebody. To add on top of that, I also don't know how to control or contain my emotions. So everything about that feels so deeply sacred that I don't want any other relationship to touch it. Right. Like nothing can be that. And I don't mind, but also am I being stag- stagnant now in my growth? Right. It's natural to beg the question, probably, but let's follow this this thread on love because you just mentioned it. Can can being in love multiple times diminish or augment our capacity to feel future love or current love for that matter? This is something that I had struggled with myself a little bit. Like I, I was sort of raised under this paradigm of, you know, having, you know, your one relationship or getting married and, and, and walking a certain path that was very conventional in its own right. And I remember there was this point in like my middle twenties where I started to panic a little bit because I had had a few relationships and because I had experienced the highs and lows of the life cycle of a love. And I tried to come up with a more optimistic solution here, which was this explanation that like it actually augments your capacity, right? Like we get better at our relationships for those experiences. But kind of what I'm hearing here is maybe the opposite, the suggestion that maybe it like, maybe there's a, a, a set of ingredients that that make this recipe where those prior experiences might be actually forbidding future growth or future experience or that kind of thing. Like, as if to say that getting back to that idea about fossilization or, or the curing or the brittleness of an ex- emotional experience. I think that in any case, every break, whether you want it to or not, like every heartbreak, every failure of a, rela- of a relationship, whatever, it only brings you closer to yourself, whether that's in a good way or a bad way. And maybe it is the choice that the choice, like the way that you choose to look at it, that kind of moves you in one direction or the other. Right. That, that would make the difference, right, between right. whether or not you can diminish versus augment your capacity. Right. Yeah. From an energetic standpoint, it's like there's not, it's not black and white. No, it's, it's like all relative. I can love again. I don't think that I can experience that range of emotion with anybody else. Right. And that's okay. But I also question like what, A, is my relationship to commitment? What is my relationship to communication? And because of that experience, more of that is turned in on myself because that person's no longer in my life and has moved on. Then rather than giving it to somebody else, because that's so sacred, I'm just going to take the time to give it to myself. But I also feel like I'm not creating new pathways for myself because this is so sacred Mm. Yeah, that I don't want to steer away from it. I don't want it to go away. I don't want that to... You're Ever. feeling hung up on that feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The moments that define you in this sense, and, and moment might be kind of a loose term when you're talking about a, a relationship or a love that lasted over a period of your life. But if you could think about it as a discrete moment, like a bomb that drops on your timeline, I, I'm so fascinated by challenging where those edges are and like what is possible versus what's not possible. These moments that shape our narrative, they're, they they seem very important and they become such a part of our story. But in that exact same hand, like I can't help but also listen to these lessons that I've learned about the things that we talk about in yoga or on the cushion, like doing meditation. They all could be kind of passing clouds in their own sense if we are to believe that we are truly fluid and that we are humans that 
are on a timeline that is constantly changing. Or in other words, the danger is that we're giving these little moments or these discrete, important parts of our narrative so much power that we might miss the forest through the trees. Like we only get to capture a single snapshot or a checkpoint of ourselves. And in that way, you might actually be losing out on who the rest of you is. Bad grammar. (laughs) Yes, I get that. Like I definitely definitely resonate with wondering who the rest of me is. Mm. And again, it's this duality, these two poles in opposite directions where after this experience, I've become more centered and I've been able to practice non-attachment, but not in a way that means that I dissociate anymore. Like I can feel my emotions, but I don't define myself by those emotions. However, there's also that part of me in the back of my head that's like, it's because nothing will ever be that again and keep that sacred and put that way up on that pedestal. So how, do, how, how does that voice, like, could you caricaturize the voice that you're talking about that says that kind of shit? Like, does it seem more the sort of like the devil on the, the left shoulder kind of thing? Or is it, how much legitimacy does it sound when you're hearing those sorts of suggestions? It's deep, man. It's like this deep st- Still point that's like, feel and recognize that that's not the end point. Mm. So what is it? Is it that I have been able to practice non-attachment and I've come into a place where I have a capacity to feel? Or am I so numb that I recognize it as something sacred when it's not? Sounds like you're just saying like, this is a standard to which every other love will be measured. Yes. But it's also like, it's something that feels completely untouchable Mm -hmm. because maybe you're not willing to let yourself go there anymore or because you can. Yes. And and that's always a question in my mind and the question of regret only the things you didn't do in life. Okay. Well, did I do this and follow through to its fullest extent? Or is this something that I didn't follow through with that I should regret? Yeah, I mean, you, you want to hope that the there should never even be a need for regret, right? Like you hear these sort of catchphrases about like, oh yeah, no regrets, la la la. But it's not so much that I want to act with that kind of confidence that I've, I've, I've walked through my whole life and done such a good job that everything just feels great. I think it's natural to have a little bit of if not self-criticism, at least self-analysis, right? Like be able to beg the question, what are things that I can improve upon? Like what are interactions and habits and rituals that I can do that might improve the way, or it might make make me go closer towards different types of relationships that I want to cultivate and nurture in my life, right? It seems to me that the judgments that we're carrying about these imprints or these really important moments tend to really affect our narrative. But to your point, you have to ask yourself, like, if I don't take anything away from some experience, like, what was the value in it? Or in other words, what's the greatest tragedy, the greater tragedy, to carry those echoes for with you for the rest of your life or to not have any whatsoever, to have a relationship or a love or, you know, a, a, a crazy spiritual experience that you didn't actually take anything away from? I'd rather carry the echo every day. Right. I have to say. All of us would. Because, I mean, how else do you get to have meaning to it, right? Like, okay. and, and this is, I think this might be where your sort of the attachment to that narrative comes from is this question of being like, well, if it was meaningful, so what? What, what other evidence do I have that I carry behind? Maybe there's a tattoo that reminds me of it or a t-shirt or like a wall poster, like some piece of artwork or like a, a recipe that I learned during that relationship that I'll keep making. What little pieces of evidence do we get to carry with us when we go from one thing to the next? That reminds me so much of, have you guys ever seen, do you guys like Woody Allen film? Yes. Anybody? Okay. Well, Vicky Cristina Barcelona <gasps> happens to be one of my favorite movies. So great. We're having a girl moment. <laughs> anyway. Oh, 
see so, it if you haven't. When Javier Bordem says, only unfulfilled love can ever be romantic. Mm-hmm. I feel like that really applies to this somehow. Like, right. And it's the fact the, that it the ended. The things that end. Yes, it, that it ended. You romanticize them. Abruptly. Yeah. And if I take a step back and see the bigger picture, like, no, this person could not support me in my growth. And this person could not be there in every situation because this person chose to leave in the midst of the biggest moment. And I I often wonder, so is my attachment to my self-realization there? Whoa, I saw a glimpse of myself that I haven't seen since. Right. And am I looking for it in relationships? And because it was so sacred to see myself so vulnerable, so raw, so open, is, is you know, can I see that again? Is that, is that the only way that I'm going to see it? Exactly. I want to talk about philosophy. It just seems very relevant here because in my own journey, how I've confronted different situations where I felt very stuck, I've had to turn to the books in a lot of cases. And we glanced up against this a little bit when I started to suggest about these dangers of allowing single moments or single labels to kind of define who we are in a permanent sense because of this underlying belief that that idea of self does change over time. The idea generally is that we can have labels about who we are or what we're doing, but there's a limit to how useful that is. Like it might be enough to get those labels to at least get a sense of the things that I want to work on, but then it all becomes down to the rituals and the habits and the the little tiny moments of these interactions between individuals to individuals that we can actually cultivate the kind of person that we want to be. And almost as a prerequisite, you have to be willing to accept that no part of you is permanent, that everything that you're faced with is going to change. And when it comes to deifying or building monuments to the loves that we've experienced, there is a validity there because it, it, it helps to pay homage to something that feels good. But the flip side of it is when we experience extreme pain or extreme hurt, like I'm I'm a guy who just lives from one heartbreak to the next in some senses. And when that happens, <laughs> I can't help but try to dismantle that exact same mechanism that builds those monuments. Like it's fine for me to keep that stupid kale salad that I learned like six years ago in some relationship that I was in because the thing is fucking delicious. But <laughs> at the same time, I still have to go through and like delete photos and and like destroy evidence, right? Like I've got to also tear down the same house that was built up around all these ideas about what that relationship meant to me. I don't want to do that. That was like, (laughs) wow. I've gone through every form of of self-understanding around that pain that I could possibly think of. And every realization that I come to is that yes, I can teach myself how to practice non-attachment. Yes, I can practice embodying and realizing self, but no, nothing will ever be that sacred. Yeah. And that's something that I can't touch it and I don't want to. And is that the biggest form of attachment or is that just reverence? Let me ask you this. Do you feel limited in any way? Like, does it does it even seem like a problem when you put it at your conscious mind? Maybe some of these things could have these underlying, you know, emotional or subconscious tones to them. But if you just if you just present this situation as if you had walked in off the street the same way, like I felt a fever one day. And so probably I was having a cold, right? <laughs> Do you feel limited? By this circumstance? No. But in a lifetime of of 32 years of embodiment, I feel stuck and unable to find freedom. 
Okay. But this situation, I don't feel held back by shit. But to be real, if I was given the choice, <laughs> choose this person I'm with or the person I was with, I'm going to fucking choose the person I was with. Hmm. I will choose that person. The one who brought you out. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is that you feel like no one else could bring you out that way. Right. But it's not anybody else's job but mine. And no. that's where the limitation no. comes in. I don't think it is. Yeah. we. Le- I mean, we learned so many different things from so many different relationships. If I were to look at, I've been in two serious relationships. One, the first one, I I learned about when to leave and what those healthy boundaries are and what is too long versus not long enough. And I learned so much about the balance between knowing that you're ready to leave and knowing that you're not growing and, and being able to create some red flags and kind of create systems for yourself so that you can be like, you know what, this is against my boundary. I've got to go. This is like not working for me. And then the second relationship taught me that that love can make you believe some crazy things. And that love can totally alter your perception of what is real. It's interesting the things that you take away from that. What was the ultimate message that you took from this relationship based on the feelings? Like Something you said sparked something I'd never thought of before. And the biggest takeaway was I learned that I am not a victim to my circumstances or my emotions. And that when I try to be a victim to my emotion and my circumstances, I'm the most manipulative person you'll ever meet. And that therefore is me being my mother. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the biggest takeaway is like, I'm not you. And I don't have to manipulate people into staying because I'm a victim to some sort of emotion. And that, that's crazy. Yeah, you just paid for years of therapy. I know. (laughs) Wow. But on, on top of that, there's this person that taught me the biggest lesson I'll ever learn and then left. So maybe it's the abandonment that's making you stay. Exactly. And now outside of it, am I constantly abandoning myself by boxing this in and not letting myself experience that truth anymore? Yeah. Well, everyone, everyone has a voice that they fight, I think, in their adult life, which is a pretty powerful talking point. Like, I think that you you fight against all the things that, that you learn. Like, finding your true self is not... It's not like finding some stupid lost item. I think that it's it's slowly uncovering like the real truth of you from all of the things that have taught you, like just all the bad and negative things. Would you guys say that that's true? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. The other thing that I take away and like realizing, well, what did I learn from this relationship is that the shadow side of myself has so much to teach me and I don't have to live there and destroy everything, right? But at this point in my life, having lived in that shadow realm for so long and learned so many things, I'm so afraid to go there again. And if I go there again, I'm going to be able to create the new ways of being that I actually need. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. The shadow realm. It's very Lord of the Rings. I know. No, it's a box of darkness. Ah, yes. Freaking awesome. It's like, in retrospect, one of the best gifts that anyone could give you, I think. Is a box of darkness? Yeah. Oh. Yes. And I I feel like (laughs) if I just go there, and let me tell you, I'm in therapy right now to try to figure out how to go there because now it used to be therapy to get out of there. Right. And now it's therapy to go there, but not lose myself there. And that's what keeps me stagnant. You have to learn how to tap into it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I... I can see it, but it's like there's a wall, cellophane ceiling, baby. Yes, and and it's weird to have to train myself to go back. (laughs) (laughs) Feminism rise. (laughs) Sorry, I just yelled. Oh, geez. There's like 18,000 different frameworks upon which you can break down this 
problem and none of them are not fascinating to me. <laughs> it's so deep. It's so complex. Right. And, and it's because it's like, I, I think about these stories about, I don't even know what you'd call it, a situation or, or people that you meet who are very in tune to this kind of stuff. Like somebody's walking down the street one day and, and t- tells the story that you just told. What are the judgments that are visible from exterior? How can I, as a radio host, break down questions that make it more apparent what it is that you're going through to anybody listening to it, right? And I don't think anybody will ever fully know what it's like to be you, but it's a funny thing because it kind of breaks a lot of the assumptions that we make around how we cultivate and how we develop. And I know you're not the only person out there that's just like feeling stuck on some shit, but I'm still struggle to find the right questions to even ask. It's a complex situation. It's so, there's so many layers to it of it's about me and it's not about me. It's about me being positive and it's me about, it's about me being in the shadow. It's it's, again, where's the center and duality? And can I coexist with both my growth and my shit? And I've always been able to walk this very fine line of, yeah, I can teach you a damn good yoga class, but it's because I'm in the shadow. Do you channel that while you're standing up there? Not anymore. Ah. And I need to. Do you think that the lack of channeling that is affecting the type of class that you teach or or like are there implications of of your professional life in that way? I'm sure, you know, my intention anytime I stand up in front of a group of people and try to teach them how to heal through breath and movement is to just be the open space through which anything that needs to be there can move through. And I used to be so much better at looking at somebody and not even saying anything, but just seeing like, I see you're going through your shit and I got you because I've been there too and I'm there right now. And now it's it's not so much that. And I wonder how much of it is because I define that period of darkness by this relationship and this growth and like, keep it somewhere untouchable. Yeah, it's very interesting to think about about personal growth when you think about what happens after you've plateaued from a particularly dark time in your life. And we've all been there and nothing, there's nothing like a romantic relationship to really bring out like a super dark night of the soul. Like it's <laughs> right. Romance does it all. It's like feel everything for somebody else, but also turn it back in on yourself and recognize. Right. So what's, what's the boundary between giving it all, but protecting yourself? And how do you approach relationships with spontaneity and lightness and openness without doing that self-abandoning thing that leads to all the dark damaging. Right. If you, if you had the answers to that question, though, could you imagine that workbook? Like, how to do relationships without falling flat on your face. Right? We would be minted right now. That's how I'd make <laughs> my first million. This is how you do it. Maintain Just the, the first shadow. one, though. Yeah. I think... <laughs> The most important simple answer to that is 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 really just learning like how to not desert yourself though, mm. right? Yes. And I teach you that all the time in in a really uncomfortable moment, can you stay with yourself? Right? Can you just sit with that and like so this is shitty. Okay. Well, you're still here though and you still have to deal with this. Yeah, I feel like this this whole year in Denver for me has been kind of being on like the tail end of of a pretty dark night just for myself. It's been a transformative time, as I've said in previous episodes, and it's not necessarily plateauing. I feel like my work with myself is just beginning, but I definitely feel some resistance when it comes to getting involved with anyone new. And so I'm kind of just like sitting tight and dealing with figuring out like some new rules for myself and some new boundaries. No matter where you are, like whether you're in a state of recovery or 
you're plateauing and things are becoming okay and you're getting used to things being really good and wholesome and awesome again or like wherever you are in your relationships like there's there's always I think another step to look forward to at least I hope and you do form sort of a relationship with with a lot of darkness that's what I'm doing right now and so I find myself like drawn towards that leg of the conversation always does everyone else involved think that there is a part in your heart that could be untouchable like if you just kind of claimed it for yourself yeah I and I wonder too it's the recognition of is this mine and am I giving it to somebody else or am I defining something that's just for me through somebody else and I wonder constantly if that's in that person that was a catalyst to growth is he the person that I felt every emotion I'm ever capable of feeling with or did he help me carve out a place in my heart that's just mine that seems like more the answer to me right but am I using that now of I felt everything I could possibly feel with this person to be numb. To insulate yourself too yeah, much. To be like, I'm padded against yeah. protected. Everybody will hear that and have a different idea about optimism. When I say that, I refer to this assumption that we're all going to see different value in the different challenges that we come across. And for some of us, it will be finding love that has staying power. Over time, we see that this podcast is becoming a club of folks who didn't marry young and have kids young and this kind of thing. And it's not that I, I don't want to have conversations with the other side of the fence there, but we're all kind of tackling this doubt or these these questions about what are what is it that we're capable of. If we didn't fit the mold and we didn't go through a narrative in life that works really well against what we were presented with or what we grew up around, we still have to find solace somewhere in what it is that we're going to be good at and what it is that we're going to find strength from. I completely agree with that. I've definitely had this conversation time and time again with, with different members of my family saying, okay, so you're kind of reaching the point. Like you, you've you been in, in a couple of really serious relationships where you this could have been the one. Like what's it going to take for you? And for me, like I, I feel like my answer threatens it's cynical, but to me, like it, it sounds way more hopeful than it probably sounds to to people who are already in a married situation, which also is a married situation. That sounds cynical as fuck. Um, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I'm going to stop myself right, right there. Um, uh, keep digging. A married situation. Can I get you a shovel? A married situation. I'm just digging it. myself into this hole. Um, <laughs> I know that it sounds cynical when I put it that way, but my response to some of these questions has been, hey, look, like it's not that I have not been willing to go there with someone. It's just that for one reason or the other, like it has not been right for me, has not supported my growth. And I chose to have lots of moments following the ending of that relationship. I chose to have those moments of discomfort and question and regret maybe because I was not willing to settle for something that isn't what my idea of marriage should be. When it happens to me, if it ever happens for me, I'm convinced in my heart that it'll be for real, for the one time. And I still have that hope. And I'm fine with knowing that I walked away from those situations because they would not have been able, they wouldn't have been the answer to that one call that I have. It's a siren call. I get that. And I had that. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm with somebody else who loves me so much and I love him so much and it'll never be that. I definitely have had to make myself stop comparing though, because each person is really different. And that's not to like, not to advocate for anything. It's just to say, do you, do you <laughs> think that that comparison is fair? Don't confuse us with people who give advice. Yeah. Like, th this is <laughs> not an important take home about no. this show. Yeah, like we're, 
no experts here. We'll we'll invite the experts to the show. You're right. You know, it's not fair to compare. It's also a comparison of who I was and who I am. And this deep reverence I have for the volatile, destructive self that knew so much. And then recognizing that I can be calm and still know all that stuff. Yeah. But if I'm so blocked, I can't create the space to find that inner knowing. With someone new. With somebody new or with myself now. With myself as 32 as opposed to with myself as 26. That's a very destructive year for a lot of people. Have you ever heard of Saturn return? Oh, yeah. It's real. It's It's the beginning of the Saturn return. Yeah. (laughs) When you are changing at your deepest core self is like, no. It's time to grow. Yeah, I'm at the tail end of the Saturn return. Break out the life. It comes with a vengeance. Equipment. <laughs> yeah. Just digging holes into the sides of mountains and that kind of thing. Are there any other questions that you want me to ask you, Alyssa? No, I mean, that's just, this is the reality of the struggle of my way of being. This is have your I quandary. felt, yeah, have I, this is the, the cross I bear. Have I felt everything I've, I'm ever capable of feeling? Have I felt every emotion I could possibly feel to its fullest extent? And now everything is just a lesser version of it. Or have I held myself back and... The journey inward to discover it continues with a lot of love and a lot of compassion (laughs) and just recognizing that I don't have to be so hard on myself about it, that I can love a lot of people in a lot of really deep ways. And this particular instance was, was profound. And on the profound level, it was because of myself. And that profound instance carved the reservoir for all this love, which is also really cool. Being human, being human's a nightmare sometimes. I think the ultimate I think the ultimate message for this whole thing is just like you have to love yourself through all these steps. Gotta gotta love the box of darkness, you know? No matter how many questions we ask or, or people we interview, we, we always seem to land on the exact same conclusion. The answer is always self-compassion. I expect everyone here is going to have different opinions about the way that they are. I can't pretend to maintain journalistic integrity on this topic. I am a firm believer that many of our ideas of self are fluid, if not all of them. Uh, One of the books that we had recommended for Philosophy Tuesday a while ago was Michael Pewitt's The Path, and he summed it up at least as just another statement on this same opinion. The very things we believe to be true when we plan out our lives are also the things that ironically will limit us. It's on us to recognize where that stuff is, but to the point of the motto and to the point of what you said, Alyssa, if there is change that you are trying to visualize in yourself or in the world, if anybody listening to this has change they are trying to enact or cultivate, the motto of the show still rings true. It applies to you. Be brave, be patient, and love yourself. And with that, I think we are about out of time. Alyssa, thank you so much for being here. It's just super awesome to have you in the studio as a matter of, of promotion. Tell us about you. How can we find you? Who, who are you? You can find me at yoga, man, but it's <laughs> going to be fate if you do. Solid. I like that. <laughs> and this is us, Anonymously Loving, Alyssa. Yes. Anna. Charlie, we are here and... Thanks for being here, and thanks for listening, and have a good night. Namaste, bitches. Good evening. (laughs) 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 (laughs)
Shit I'm Not Proud Of is made with love in Denver, Colorado, and is recorded at Creative Density Coworking. If you need a low-cost podcasting studio to record from in Denver, look up Creative Density at www.creativedensity.com. Next week, we'll explore what it's all about to express yourself. We hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening.